0: Hi, I'm Aaron. And I'm Kimona. And this is Rebels Advocate, the podcast where we break down the shit show
1: that is the current social climate and reframe the radical. Let's get started. Well, hello there, Kimona. Hello, Aaron, my love. It's been a minute. It's been a been a little. It's been too long, honestly. I mean, it's 1 week of not recording, but that's a lot. For it's us. too long in my heart. My soul
0: <laughs> my soul needs this. Deprived, deprived of my Routine and my my lifestyle really. Mm. It's so funny not like doing that like hello in the beginning because I'm like that's annoying. <laughs> no, it is not. But like I'm gonna keep doing it because <laughs> I, I don't know it. what else what else would be my thing. So Listen, I look gonna- forward to it to the hello. All right, yeah, good, I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, hello there, folks. We are back here at Rebels Advocate and. We are going to talk about a much-mentioned episode. I almost said video, and I'm like, that is quite the opposite of a <laughs> podcast. Um, but the much, I, I don't want to say anticipated either, because like I
1: anticipated it. But, That's a lot of anticipation. You have a lot.
0: It, we're, <laughs> doing, we're doing a podcast about intersectionality, and we're so here for it. Kamona and I are so big on you know making sure that people know what intersectional feminism in particular but like just intersectionality is and why it's relevant um so i'm pretty excited we're big into this talking about intersectionality and really making sure that people you know know the roots of it what it means and why you should really include intersectional um practices in everything that you advocate for
1: um so i'm excited me too i love intersectionality very important um and i've been talking about it in my grad classes recently so i mean yeah that's where most
0: this idea and most of my notes came from was from a paper that i wrote on it in um college but yeah so the idea the title um is has a little story because it's um was the name of the paper that I made, the Let's Unlearn White Feminism Together. Um, So I named the paper that, but I had the idea and named the paper that because I saw it on the interwebs. I saw it on like a, it was like, I think it was like a cake that had icing that said Let's Unlearn White Feminism Together. And it was the best thing I've ever seen. I love that. um, Thus was born... (laughs) The paper and now the ep- uh, the episode of why intersectional feminism is the only feminism and how intersectionality crosses over in all the things that I'm passionate about and anything else you could really advocate for. Um, I'm big on intersectional environmentalism. Um, just It's just relevant all the time. Amen. Well, I feel like just to give people some background, um, I'm going to give i'm gonna throw out some definitions out here um just because well for starters we are going to name drop kimberly williams crenshaw so many times she is one of my favorite people uh she has a twitter follow her. um but she's a lawyer a civil rights activist and professor who coined the term intersectional uh intersectionality in terms of like what what we all use so colloquially now um not that I don't think she invented the word, <laughs> but she invented the um, the concept and was the first to really coin this idea in a paper that she wrote called Demarginalizing the Intersection Between Race and Sex. Um, so that's where, it, that's usually where she um, talks about intersectionality and feminism that concept of how being specifically black female um, is relevant in
1: just, you know, existing hey Erin did you know that she also has a podcast no she has a podcast it's called Inter- my brain just like yeah my brain just
0: exploded I
1: found it recently it's called intersectionality matters
0: oh, It does <laughs> matter. <laughs> so this is why we say that like if you don't know who Kimberly Crenshaw is you're not a real feminist like I don't believe you like you don't know your basic homework mm-hmm. very um, important so another term I like to reference in the definition of intersectionality is Angela Davis, another amazing Black female that we love to hype up. Um, and it's her. also someone who should usually be quite familiar with. Um, but Angela Davis refers to intersectional, uh, intersectionality as the interrelating characters of identity. Um, so this is what we're talking like mainstream feminism needs to incorporate justice seeking for all types of women. And that's based on all types of oppression um, and how those intersect um, being sexism, racism, homophobia, classism, and those things are always going to impact one another. And I think that's the main s- substance of the education you need to have a p- educated, appropriate, discussion on really anything. What any of those topics, sexism, racism, classism. Like you need to be able to talk about how being a black woman is going to affect you differently than being a white woman. And how just because we're women and we've both faced sexism,
1: I'm not gonna face racism as a white woman. Yeah. And the the thing that I really love about intersectionality Is how it specifically references Like the intersections Not to use the word and the definition uh, That are created By the layering of multiple Identities so like As you were saying black women have a Very specific uh, Plight or way of Navigating the world than a White woman does and while they both share Womanhood like me and you we both Are women But I can face Misogynoir you can't and there's like that's a specific like black woman oppression, and like because there is there's there's blackness, there's a, the oppression of black people, there's the oppression of women, and like those two things also affect black women. But then you put them together, and then there's also this new kind of oppression created. I think it's really it's like a Venn diagram, exactly. And like people can't see, but I'm doing a lot of uh, hand motions. <laughs> <laughs> just it's a lot of visualization of things um, and then i got
0: i got a really good example then to talk about that that i have learned from kimberly um dr crenshaw um she's a doctor
1: right did i just make that I'm up i'm pretty sure you want me to play crenshaw, crenshaw phd i'm pretty sure Find whatever her Twitter.
0: she's powerful um powerful and smart so um she uses an amazing example, which is a lawsuit by Emma De reed and she sued a company who wouldn't hire her because she believed she wasn't hired because she was a black woman. Um, but she lost that lawsuit because the company, um, like, in their defense, was, brought up evidence of how they hired plenty of women. So they brought out their statistics and they're like, see, we hired a lot of women and we hire a lot of black people. Um, so that didn't address, however, the fact that they didn't hire a lot of black women. Um, so that's a perfect example of how people fail to see how those two intersects, um, those two things intersect, (laughs) um, that being a woman and being black, you can also have both of those and be a black woman and face completely different issues. So sure, they pulled up all those statistics, and in reality, sure they ha- hired a lot of women, um, but those were white women, and the black people that they were hiring were black men.
1: Yes, Is she a doctor. She is I a doctor. She is a doctor. Okay. Yep. I I figured she's a professor, a lawyer. Like she had to have a PhD up in there too. Even if she didn't have one, I still she deserves it. <laughs> she's earned the title in my book. <laughs> Agreed but yeah i had to read that for my um introduction class for ethics and society and i was like oh my goodness yes very it was very happy that this white male professor included that in our syllabus um it. it's just it's a great time studying ethics man honestly i think <laughs> it's really
0: interesting because i mean i have this similar interest in ethics that's why i minored in philosophy my my niche is bioethics because that's where it kind of intersects for me. Mm-hmm. Ooh, intersex. Um, just because I'm so sciencey, but I really care about the ethics of science and, you know, making sure that ethical things are happening. And those kinds of conversations that come up in bioethics is usually abortion, um, like in like the right to life discussion. And is it ethical to... Uh, have assisted suicide and things like that um, stem cell research all these crazy things um, so I think ethics is pretty relevant and basically any topic that you
1: I mean about. I sure hope so because I'm getting a second degree in it um, but you bring up bioethics and I, I think that's really interesting right now especially because we're in this weird time where coronavirus vaccine it's happening uh I've like, heard of her uh, yeah you know i don't know if you've heard I've of heard. her i don't know if you know <laughs> miss miss rona <laughs> uh but you know she we're trying to get rid of her <laughs> and the the with the vaccine coming out and um i believe what is it the uk has yes has cleared one of them i don't remember which one Pfizer. Is, <laughs> pfizer okay yep. and the fda is still working on on clearing those uh but I've been having a lot of conversations recently, even just like within my family about whether or not people are taking the vaccine. And I, at first I was like, Oh, these people come on. And then I had to take a seat and like, think about it and think why is there, why are these conversations happening with these people who are close to me, who I trust, who I think are, you know, very educated people. Um, and they have this mistrust. And I realized, huh, this is, this is an issue of intersectionality. Because um, there is just this history of a long, history. a long, horrible history of mistreatment of the Black community, specifically when it comes to medical ethics and things. And I was just like, oh, I get it now. I see it. Not that I, like, I didn't see it before, but I forget that it right. directly impacts still the people in my life, like my family.
0: Well, I think it's, I mean, I understand why that might be like more hidden from you because you're in a generation where we talk about over and over again, how the racism is a lot less overt. Um, so you're not hearing about it in crazy cases like the Tuskegee case and all these things of giving black people syphilis and murdering black women but you know i'm very passionate of how bioethics affects the black community especially um maternal fatalities um black women are just so much more likely to die in childbirth and with the technology that there is it horrifies me mm-hmm. um so i think those these are all very relevant and hopefully to people who are not super familiar with intersectionality that they can see how that definition and that concept overlaps in literally anything that Kimona and I have ever talked about on this show Um, which is why we kind of wanted to dedicate an episode of being like this is what it is this is why it matters and why you need to consider yourself uh, intersectional in anything that you're going to advocate for One thing uh, that I mentioned in my paper um, was about this awesome, I think it was a TED Talk, but if it wasn't a TED Talk, it was some other um, big lecture that Kimberly was giving. Um, uh, and she was talking about something that you and I have talked about a lot, and I think it's really relevant to um, the conversations that have been happening since June specifically with um, – George Floyd's death and Mm. a lot of people using the hashtag of say his name or say her name, (laughs) say their name, whatever. Um, Specifically because it was coined as say her name because it was meant to address the intersectionality of Black women being Black and being a woman and the What the issues that they face in police brutality, because when police brutality is spoken about in terms of black people being mistreated by the police and law enforcement, it is almost exclusively about black men. And that is a intersection that is not represented of black women, and that is just another oppression that they face. Um, So... I'd love to hear what you have to say about that because I know we've talked about it before um, about that hashtag. Yeah
1: uh, and that because that hashtag came about because of an important area that is has been and continues to be overlooked um, and as like and it's so hard to to properly critique these things sometimes because then you get backlash and people be like, well, you're just, you know, you're just trying to like take away from the movement. And like, how can you be a real sister if you're like really just like coming for black men like this, blah, 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 blah. Don't even get me started on that. But there is, there's an important distinction to be made at times because no one, we can't, fight for black liberation and not recognize the nuance that comes with that because of black liberation for black men if you stop there there are still there's black women black queer women black trans women who need a specific type of support that just the generic like whatever a black man needs to succeed might not uplift black women black trans women in this way and it really bothers me. And I think it speaks to how easily black women and our stories are erased from society. The way that say her name was so quickly co-opted and be like, say their name, say say his name. Like we've we've been saying his name. We've been saying black men's names whenever police brutality issues happen. And I'm not saying that we need to stop saying their those names. That's not it at all. But we also need to spend pay special attention to the ways that police brutality look different for black women sometimes. Absolutely. And
0: again, to give specific examples, um, what I found so moving and powerful in Kimberly Crenshaw's, um, this exercise she did during this lecture where she had the entire audience uh, stand up. And mind you, if you're going to a, A lecture by Kimberly Crenshaw, you're probably already relatively educated in the concept Mm -hmm. of, you know, identifying race in feminism at the very least. So she had the room stand up and I would. I think it was a predominantly female audience as well, which is not surprising, but so she had the audience stand up and she asked them to sit down when they did not recognize a name. Um, so she listed, this is not the entire list, but she listed um, a few names like Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray. Um, majority of people were still standing. A few people here and there, um, maybe with towards Michael Brown and Freddie Gray, maybe they were not as familiar. Um, but still a huge chunk of the audience was still Standing, um, including white women. And then she moved on to another list where she started saying names like Tanisha Anderson, Michelle Cusseau, Ora Rosser, Megan Hockaday. And almost immediately at that first female Black woman um, name, she, almost everyone was sitting down. And then by the end of the list of Black women who have died. Due to police brutality, um, which was the names that were listed, um, only a couple people were standing up. And of those people, of what I saw in the video, it it appeared to be a few Black women. um, So who probably made it a priority to know those names, to research that, to keep informed about Black women who are dying at the hand of police brutality. Uh, But that really goes to show you that even people who are more progressive, more enlightened um, in the area still aren't aware of these women who have died under these same circumstances that Black men have.
1: Yeah, and I think... I think that's really important to note that it's even within these spheres of like we're all you know learning together. We are taking on this anti-racist journey, like we're, where people are dedicated to that, this still happens. And I think it's because that it's a it's a systemic issue. It's the the intersections of different systems of oppression all coming together. And I think it's so easy to be in these circles and think well we can't have that happening um like we we're, we're all like looking out for this but we're still functioning within that system we have to actively combat it in every single way even in the circles where we're recognizing that the system is the problem we have to remember that we still have to actively com- combat that otherwise what's gonna happen Not much. It's going to stay the same. We will perpetuate the system because it is designed for us to continue to perpetuate it.
0: Exactly. We're, we're born into this and there's no way to, even if you're raised in a progressive household who, with parents that, you know, claim to reject racism and, you know, work in anti-racist do the work. Um, You know, it's not, it's not possible to avoid the inevitable. Um, And I think it's important in this conversation of like why being an intersectionalist is so important, um, specifically in regards to like feminism, Mm -hmm. uh, because I feel like that's usually the conversation um, where it's the heaviest of intersectional uh, feminism. And I think it's important to identify how that, why being that is so important is because the the mainstream is to be a white bourgeoisie feminist. Um, because that's something that um, Angela Davis talks about a lot. Because she likes to talk to identify how the mainstream feminism is for white women. Mm-hmm. It's the most represented and assumes that feminism is a white woman's issue. Um, which, of course, then lends a hand to that intersection too of classism because it enables the affluent, the wealthy, um, which then tends to be white women, again, to succeed. Um, The girl boss, if you would. Oh my (laughs) God, we're totally gonna have an episode on that because I freaking hate that term, girl boss. Mm. You mean boss, I'm a boss. My uh, gender is not relevant. If you call me a girl boss, I'll hurt you. The end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a Taurus. But another <laughs> term that I love that Angela Davis talks about a lot is a uh, glass ceiling feminism, because that really um, goes hand in hand with, you know, bourgeoisie feminism that's based in affluence and a hierarchy of like, you know, who's, whose issues matter the most. Mm. Uh, and then, privileges the already privileged because you know it's really easy to break the glass ceiling air quotes air quotes um when you're already a foot away from it if you're a black woman you don't have the affluence and the privilege that lends to you breaking it you're you're on the first floor and i'm at the roof Mm. you know like that's not That's not fair. It's not equal. And that representation of, you know, she really shattered the glass ceiling. It's going to be mostly white women that you're going to refer to that as because she was already close enough. Was Hillary Clinton Clinton really breaking glass ceilings when she had all this privilege? Oh, my God. I cannot speak today. (laughs) Words are hard. Honestly. (laughs) She has all this privilege behind her. She's wealthy. She's white. Her husband was the president already. She's in that political space. Like, I'm not to, you know, deject the important things that she was able to do. And, like, being a nominee for a president, like, a female is a huge, huge concept. But you can't equate that to the success and you know that enables white women versus you know maybe a black trans woman or someone who has those layers
1: of oppression where Mm -hmm. those intersect and there's something off to me about this phrase the glass ceiling that I only have just started to realize because when you talk about breaking the glass ceiling if you shatter glass the shards fall and hit people below you so you can break the glass ceiling but who who has to still sweep that glass up who's stepping on it on the bottom trying to claw their way up to this idealized like very capitalist version of success um it's not it doesn't it doesn't work that well and i think it's important to also know in this vein that representation while important, is not liberation. It's not going to save us. You can be, like, a really successful woman in power, blah, 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 blah. You can still take on the role of the oppressor quite easily. Because, again, these systems are designed so that we perpetuate them. Like, it's so easy. Like, yeah, you can break the glass ceiling. And then, oh, you're going to go fix the ceiling because you're in charge. And now that's your job.
0: You know what this makes me think of? Have you have you seen The Morning Show on Apple TV? I haven't. I just binged it um, last week and it's really, really good. But something that is kind of discussed and addressed is how one of the head anchors is kind of complicit in all of the um, sexual harassment that is going on Um Even though she's not explicitly aware of what's going on, she's complicit in it because, you know, she's aware of the flirting comments that the male anchor is making. She's aware of, like, the jokes, the touching, but she dismisses it because she's benefiting from being a successful woman. Mm -hmm. The interns, the PAs, the people that can't really afford to speak up, the women of color, um... Are subjected to this but as a successful woman usually white you're meant to shut up because you're you're the good woman you're you're one of the boys you've made it and you're meant to shut up and stay there um and it's something that's addressed in the last episode uh pretty much the last like climax the culmination of everything that's happening um it's Jennifer Aniston's character and she really just like has it out on live television and really just says you know takes responsibility for some of that saying i wasn't gonna say you're you're right i wasn't gonna say anything because i was benefiting from that mm. and i think that's something that's expected and maintained and i think you have to for someone to not fall into that they have to be doing a whole lot of work
1: mm-hmm. a whole lot of work it's crazy
0: I think it goes in to a lot of the things that we've been saying mm-hmm. just of like, when does it come into play that like we, we have these conversations all the time about white people, white women choosing the benefits that they're getting in life. Um, and it's hard. This is why confronting racism is such a hard discussion for white people. Um, and this is totally like, a great concept that's reflected in the book white fragility um it's so hard for white people to talk about because they don't even notice that they're getting the privileges they just live their lives and it's normalized and assumed that the world is
1: reflected through a white person's eyes yep and then when you try to level out the playing field it feels like white people and people with other privileges are being disadvantaged that's what it feels like to them because you're like they're you're taking these things away it's like well actually you you had this excess to begin with you started the the marathon over here at like i don't know how long a marathon is what like 26 miles you started like at i don't know but you started at like mile 23 and everyone else is over here at zero so we're bringing everyone back to zero like some people started like negative four okay we're bringing everyone same place um but that and people get uncomfortable because it feels weird and it's difficult work but it is still important and necessary
0: absolutely and it's because unless you're taught otherwise unless you start doing this work and start questioning the world and maybe the world that you grew up in and the families you came from you don't realize as a white person you don't you just like okay yes I have every right to do this, that, and the other thing. It's my God-given right for existing as a human being. But so therefore, I when something is, when extra help is given to a community of color, uh, maybe something like affirmative action that usually, um, or like hiring people based on diversity, which usually makes white people very, very uncomfortable because they think those people are getting a benefit that they weren't. Um, afforded Mm -hmm. but they're not taking into account that their lived experiences being able to just have things for existing Mm -hmm. isn't the same lived experience for people of color and I, I get that and I'm sure I've felt that at certain stages of my life but my hardships just aren't the same because If I go to the police, they're going to help me. If I go, you know, go to the classroom, I'm going to see teachers that look like me. I'm going to be walking to a store and no one's going to think I'm going to steal anything. And white people, unless taught otherwise, unless they do the anti-racist work, aren't aware that other people have a different lived experience. And that is such a huge Huge privilege that needs to be identified.
1: Yep. It's (sighs) yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just yes. And I think one thing that I just keep coming back to in this conversation is the way that looking at intersectionality highlights the different aspects of systemic oppression and how they affect people um, and how it's really easy to center one version of the system and how it works as what we need to, to work against, what we need to to combat. But that one version, you can dismantle it and then it can still find ways to exist in other parts of the system, other branches of the system. And for me, What I have really taken from intersectionality and looking at how the systems just like layer over each other to create very specific oppression for very specific people is that we have to get at the center of this big old giant Venn diagram. You have to find the, the most intersectional root of all these causes all these issues all of the oppression and we have to tackle that and i appreciate intersectionality so so much because of that because it highlights that you could look at the glass ceiling but you're not addressing how black women are affected you're not addressing how trans women how affected are affected how trans black women are affected so you got to go to the the most inwards of these circles and if you're not if your activism isn't centering the quote-unquote most oppressed and i use that phrase like it's it's weird but like bear with me if you're not centering those who are at the 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 most intersections of the intersections (laughs) <laughs> then your activism is problematic, and you need to reassess your priorities. Absolutely, because we
0: all afford some kind of privilege. You'd have to be a very, very niche type of person. That certainly exists, but like mm-hmm. you are oppressed in class, in race, in gender, in sexuality and religion, in all these other things. Um, but for most of us, we have something that we are afforded some privilege that we get to walk around the world a little easier because we're assumed to be the norm although i am queer although i am a woman i am white and that is never going to make my struggles anywhere near what it's like to be you and i mean not to say that i haven't had traumas and like it's not i feel like people just think it's like a competition Mm, mm -hmm. like for god's sakes maybe if we really did just like outline all of my traumas and all of yours maybe mine would come out worse (laughs) but like that doesn't mean that i am not afforded this massive privilege that i can walk out the door and be seen as the normal and you can't
1: Exactly I think people really misunderstand when we talk about privilege and systemic oppression that that like it's this idea like oh I'm white so you think I don't have any problems at all like nah baby this is life this is humanity we all got issues we are all struggling in some way. however, your struggles are not happening because you're white that Amen. is the difference a hundred percent. That was
0: a better way of saying it than I did. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know, if we took all of our traumas away and said that we both had this really ideal life, uh, we are both extremely wealthy and have never had anything bad happen to us. Again, I'm going to get treated better. Exactly. It's just it's- the way it is. The world that we live in, specifically Western cultures, especially America assumes that the normal person the i I feel like there's a better word um you know i need to really go through all my notes in white fragility because this is what's inspiring (laughs) so much of this conversation and i highly encourage that if you are a white listener please for the love of god read white fragility it is so well done um no matter what step of your journey that you're on um like we've said pretty early on, like, I've done a lot of anti-racist work. I've been on this journey for a very long time. But people that I know who are like very new in their journey and still have a lot of problems and still problematic, find it very helpful and very eye-opening. So it's written by a white woman who does anti-racist work for a living. It's very, very helpful. Um, So I highly encourage you to read it and take notes Mm -hmm. like I did. I'd I'd give anyone my copy except my copy is completely like destroyed. I have so many like notes in the margins and like highlighting like I'm in college when I'm reading this like in my own time.
1: But honestly, that's the way to do it. I think that's super important because, and I—I I literally just read something about this because I'm in the middle of finals, and th- this oh, is poor baby. This recording right now is literally my like study break. Uh- <laughs> Proud of you. It's I true. read White Fragility on my work break, so I love that for you. But I was literally just reading about uh, the importance of solidarity. Was it in the context of the Catholic Church? Yes, but we <laughs> we can take those farther i this is this is a little like brackets here but catholic social teaching has really inspired a lot of my life and i'm not catholic so we should talk about that at some point um well we could totally talk about religion i was
0: raised as a catholic i've mentioned it here before i i can teach catholic uh ccd i was i am literally registered in the diocese of trenton but i'm an agnostic bordering on atheist
1: Yo. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna have to have this conversation um, more in depth right, at some point. But <laughs> the concept of solidarity and how it is when people are standing in solidarity with others, it is more than just saying yes, I see your pain, I see your issue. It is. It requires action. Um, it requires you to do something. To standing in solidarity is is that actively taking on this issue in your everyday life. And so it's the little things like reading white fragility and taking notes and looking at how you can implement that in your daily life, how you can combat your own white fragility day to day. That is so important. And people don't realize that it's these little steps that are taken collectively that will make change.
0: Well, yeah, the main issue isn't white people individually. It's the white collective. Yes. And what what I like um, about the book specifically because I I am appreciating the look inward because although I am extremely progressive have been doing this anti-racist work a lot you know all the cliches of I don't have only white friends I don't have but like I grew up in a very isolated white area like and it makes me really think about it were my teachers always looking like me absolutely even in college I only had a couple of environments I kind of sought out to not be the majority all the time, but there was never a time that I walk into a room and unless I'm specifically seeking it out, knowing that like, I won't be accepted there for the color of my skin. Um, And I think of course, like there's exceptions of like, if I were to walk into a black neighborhood, obviously I would be, but like, the norm again Mm -hmm. if I walk if I go to school I know my teachers are going to look like me if I look at all the presidents I know they all look like me except for one like it really does make you think of these nuances in your life that you're like oh I was always taught and afforded this privilege of seeing myself represented everywhere um, not feeling like an outsider in that way, not, not ever because of my skin color. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really, I'm also liking some of the pieces that's making me kind of look into things that, you know, maybe I don't say anymore, but things that I said when I was younger that I wasn't, I didn't even know was based in racial prejudices or racism or things like that. There's sayings that are common English that are based in very like the peanut gallery like there's a lot of very unsettling practices that are just ingrained into our society that are based in racism um and i'm i'm appreciating being confronted with this Mm -hmm. to remind myself that no matter how much work i do i will always always have to work to not be racist because and I think that's what oh my god, white people like you're so afraid to be called a racist. Mm. That you get so defensive and you don't take what like any of the actual you're not gonna learn from something if you're only getting defensive and thinking it's a character attack. Like yeah, I'll say it right I'll say it right now. Because I'm white, I am racist. There is no way that I can avoid that. I do my best every damn day and like when i say every day every day i make a conscious choice to do better and do i slip up absolutely but you take it as a learning experience to do better the next time and make sure those things don't happen so you're you know but like <laughs> it just makes you so
1: mad i'm you know, I, I, I feel this so much because i have been doing some work with um my like older school system like high school and younger um, and trying to get them to adopt like an anti-racist mindset for the institution and they they view it as a character attack. Uh, I find that white people, especially white people in power and in charge of institutions are more afraid of being called racist than they are of actually perpetuating racism and that is the bigger issue here.
0: Because it's People equate it with being a good or bad person. Like, obviously, if you're someone in the KKK and like practicing overt racism, you're a bad person. But like, just because you make a mistake or have said something problematic in the past or currently, maybe you laughed at a racist joke or you didn't confront your friend when they did, you know, it doesn't make you a bad person. You can still be a good person, but you're not. I don't I genuinely don't believe you're a good person if you can't take that and learn from it and acknowledge that you're you're like oh you're right I'm sorry how can I do better and learn if you're not willing to take that acknowledgement I don't believe you're really a good person I'll, I'll say that and stand
1: by that. Yeah, because no one's looking for perfection. I mean, okay, are there probably a few people that are like, I need you to be perfect. Yes, but those are not, this is not like the, the, the main uh, goal of the movement here. <laughs> don't worry about those but people. Like, those people, there's always going to be people on the fringes of movements who are like, Aah! but that's not the focus. The focus is that we are looking for an active commitment to anti-racism. And I don't understand why that's so difficult for people. But like, I'm not asking anyone, I'm not asking any of my white friends to be perfect, I'm asking for them to make the commitment and the choice every day to be better. I'm asking for them to be willing to have me call them out when they do something problematic, and to sit with that uncomfy feeling, and then figure out how they can make that change for the good.
0: And I would challenge and I I would like to ask as an action item for white people who are listening to this, um, to really just sit with yourself and say the words out loud. I was raised in a racist society. Therefore I have racial tendencies. I can be racist. You need to learn as I have. And I try to, like, it's not a one and done thing. Like, Oh, I said it once. Now I get it. Mm -mm. And now I don't have to move on. No, it's something you work with. I'm working every day. Like I said, to be comfortable in that. So your, your initial reaction, your visceral reaction, when someone says, Hey, you're being racist right now or whatever that is, that your initial reaction isn't defensiveness saying, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not. I, I do anti-racist work. I read I read that book. You go, oh, listen up. My ears are perked. What did I do? Because if you really want to change, if you really do care, that shouldn't bother you. So sit with yourself and really maybe just look in the mirror and say those damn words. Get comfortable with the fact that and it's not inherently your fault either. It's, mm-hmm. it's a thing that has been long before us, long before our parents and even our grandparents. And that's something that we owe, even to ourselves, but to everyone of color, to be able to say that we participate in the, this racist
1: society because we're here. The Jesuit education is so (laughs) deeply ingrained in my brain that I I can't continue this podcast without mentioning that um, while you were saying that and you were like giving this action item, I fully was like, wow, it's like a daily examine for anti-racism.
0: We love Jesuit education. If you didn't go to a Jesuit school, you are probably confused. But like, if you are, you're on, you're on par. So that's cool. You're in the club.
1: I support it. We can someone, can I write, can we, I need to talk to a priest. <laughs> Only I need, someone needs to write that. Why hasn't, why hasn't, is there, I bet there is a daily examine for anti-racism. If not, I might do it. Who knows? Be the one. Be I, the Jesuit. Listen i might do it <laughs> listen i feel
0: like once you get start getting silly that's when it's a good closing point anyway exactly um, <laughs> also because like we could literally talk about this forever mm-hmm. uh, hello that's why we started a podcast so we <laughs> literally could talk about this forever till i die
1: <laughs> Alrighty, let's wrap this baby up any last words uh Look for the anti-racist Daily Examine coming to a store near you. <laughs> coming up, <really laughs> eventually, soon. you'll see it. I, I'll I'll tell y'all. I'll keep you in the loop. Uh, uh, if you're if you're confused, Google Daily Examine. You'll the, get it. the Jesuit intersection.
0: Yeah, um, and if you're not familiar with Kimberly Crenshaw, make sure that you apparently get, follow her freaking podcast. I'm going to start doing that. I didn't know it was a thing. Um, her Twitter. She is amazing um and definitely read some of her papers and really familiarize yourself with her work especially and the original hashtag say her name um there's a lot of really awesome information that we didn't get to talk about today um and Kimona and i are super excited for next week's episode because it is another subject not that we aren't passionate about all of these things but The cool thing about being a new podcast is we're really talking about all the things that really 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 matter to us the most yeah Um, so we're gonna be talking about fat phobia um next time and i'm just so excited so
1: stay tuned for that anything else follow us on instagram at rebels adv pod uh i said that wrong that was twitter that's twitter rebels advocate pod his instagram Yep. uh i switched them in my brain but follow us on all the things we'll keep you updated for when we post new stuff um and if we have any resources to add after an episode we also have a linked tree um on our instagram
0: that has lots of lots of information things from resources our personal um handles all the other things definitely check that out and we will talk to you next tuesday bye